This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly and we are bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you when we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to at pubweeklyradio, that's radio. On Twitter. Today we'll talk with Shahan Mufti about his first book, The Faithful Scribe, and then PW senior bookselling editor Judith Rosen will bring us the news from some recent trade shows for booksellers. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So, uh, first on the uh, nonfiction bestseller list, we have uh, debuting at number two, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath, and mm-hmm. it's no surprise that he's landed on the bestseller list and this high. Uh, all of his books have been bestsellers. And this one, uh, the subtitle is Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And what's interesting about this is I think for, for the first time we're, we're starting to see in the news and, and press a little bit of a backlash against uh, Malcolm Gladwell for his, uh, his, uh, the science of his social science. So uh, people mm-hmm. started to take that apart. In fact, he was on the radio, uh, he was interviewed, and uh, at one point he said, wait a minute, someone just Malcolm Gladwelled me. <laughs> he remembers when he was a critic and uh, <laughs> would, would take, about someone else, take apart someone else's book. Um, so that one's there. It'll be there for a little while. It's very appropriate that that's at number two. At uh, number two. The, the book about the underdogs can, ah. could not could not quite overcome Bill O'Reilly in the top spot. Oh, right. Oh, I like that. Very good, Rose. Do my best. Uh, n- <laughs> number eight, we have Bill Bryson. One Summer, America, 1927. And here he takes a look at one uh, great year in America. and uh, Well, uh, one eventful year, I should say. And this includes uh, Charles uh, Lindbergh's solo flight over the Atlantic, Sacco and Vanzetti's execution, and the sculpting of Mount Rushmore, as well as the Dempsey-Carpenter uh, fight uh, mm-hmm. that year. So, And that's at number eight. Finally... Uh, the last book I want to talk about is uh, debuting at number 13, The Romney Family Table, Sharing Home-Cooked Recipes and Favorite Traditions. And uh, this book is, uh, is well, exactly what it is. It's about the, uh, the dinners and, and recipes and events of the uh, Romney family at the dinner table. And this is uh, Shadow Mountain, a small press that's uh, uh, putting this out, and it's at number 13 on the list. I feel like Anne Romney has suddenly been in the news lately. She's been talking about her husband, and she's been, uh, I guess she's got this book out. It's, that's interesting. I never, I don't remember her being sort of a public figure before this, and suddenly, you know, there she is putting herself out there. Yeah, you're right, exactly. And, and this uh, with, I mean, there's no uh, politics in, in this book. It's just uh, kind of home home cooking good for her 
Yeah. So what do we have on fiction? On fiction, um, as with nonfiction, same number one as last week. That would be Dr. Sleep by Stephen King, uh, holding on to the top spot. Slipping in at number two, close behind, uh, James Patterson's Gone. This is the latest Michael Bennett book. Uh, it's a James Patterson novel. That's kind of all you need to know. He's, he's got his fans, and the fans will be into it. Uh, this is part of a very extended family saga, and so it probably mostly makes sense to people who've been following along from the beginning. But uh, certainly those folks are, are, are numerous, and they are happy to gobble it up. Um, we've got a couple of people who are turning to fiction after a stint in nonfiction. We have The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. That's at the number four spot. Of course, she was known for Eat, Pray, Love. Um, she's been a memoirist for well over a decade, and it's interesting to see her turning to fiction, uh, or returning to fiction, I should say. Um, and we say The Signature of All Things mm. is a big, old-fashioned story that spans continents in a century. We gave it a, a starred review. It's actually got uh, quite a, a lengthy review from us uh, and it, it apparently is a, an unhurried sympathetic intelligent novel by an author confident in her material and her form yeah that's been getting great reviews uh, seemingly across the board I mean, and it's interesting for someone who uh, has written nonfiction to to be able to uh, carry the same voice or at least you know to be able to have success in, in fiction as well. And certainly the same strength of voice. Right. That, right. that sort of, that sense of, of self-confidence seems to carry through here as sure. well as it carried her through Eat, Pray, Love. Right. And uh, Anne Hillerman comes in with Spider-Woman's Daughter. That's at number 12. Um, and she is a reporter turning to fiction. So, uh, again, making that shift. Uh, and is the daughter of Tony Hillerman, who is also a name familiar to, to book readers. And uh, we say that she uh, successfully revives Navajo policemen Joe Leaphorn and Jim Chi, who were last seen in The Shapeshifter, which is Tony Hillerman's final book before he died in 2000. Mm. So she's continuing uh, his his books and his traditions, and uh, we say that like her father, Hillerman has a gift for combining history and mystery. So for people who really miss Tony Hillerman's particular touch with the mystery novel, uh, it sounds like his daughter is doing a great job of carrying on his legacy. So again, no, no surprise to see that landing on the bestseller list. And finally, I just wanted to mention Jeffrey Deaver's The October List. That's at number 17, but we also gave that one a starred review. And okay. uh, obviously, he's uh, a well-known thriller author. Um, he's won awards and uh, a great deal of acclaim. And we say that this is a clever, demanding standalone that moves backward in time over the span of a three-day weekend. So it starts on Sunday evening and finishes early Friday mornings. This is a really interesting way to do a sort of who done it or or how done it that you, you start with the the conclusion with the set up the, the the results of everything that's happened and then you go and look at the actions that led to those results um so there's a, a ransom there's a hedge fund manager there's a kidnapping uh, it's uh, it's it's quite a, a complex book uh, an elaborate series of pulleys and levers and as the ingenious plot folds back on itself the reader has to reevaluate and reinterpret the constantly shifting facts of the case and the finished picture finally emerges with a shock of recognition so our our review says this is brilliant craftsmanship in a vastly entertaining package i, I certainly really want to pick this up because i i'm fascinated by books that play around with time and linearity mm -hmm. and Clearly, all of these events actually happened in a linear way, uh, but presenting them 
in in a in reverse order and uncovering them in reverse order for the reader is it just just a great tactic and i'd love to see how he pulls that off well, sure and also how about living a weekend from the end to the very beginning all over again yeah I you mean, start like, with the hangover <laughs> exactly <laughs> and you go to that first sip <laughs> right there, there's some appeal in that right. so you, you, you get the the worst parts over with first uh, but of course then then you end up with you know, TGIF, and right then you snap back into real time, and you have to go straight right. to Monday. Exactly. <laughs> so there are pros and cons. There are pros and cons, uh, but that's uh, that's it for what's hot on the fiction list. Clearly, as we've noted before, those fall books are hitting their stride, and uh, I, I think it'll be there will be a lot of uh, moving and shifting around on the list in the next few weeks. Yeah, it should be fun. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. This is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Shahan Mufti will tell us how his family's story embodies the history of Pakistan. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Shahan Mufti on the line. He's the author of The Faithful Scribe, a family story that embodies the history of Pakistan. Shahan, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be with you guys. So this is your first book. What made you decide to write this book now? Well, the book has been in the works for a few years now. Uh, I guess I came to the book when... I was uh, reporting as a journalist. I was a daily news reporter in Pakistan, reporting the conflict in the country. Um, And it was really when I encountered uh, the family history, my own family history, which I'd never really seen before that. Uh, And this was history that traced my own roots back uh, more than a thousand years back uh, into the inner circle of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Mm -hmm. It was uh, through many generations. uh, And so it was really when I encountered that history while reporting the conflict in Pakistan that I I felt compelled to write a story because I knew, uh, I, I immediately realized that I had a story and a unique perspective on uh, on the country which is really important to uh, the countries which is really important to an American audience and, uh, and so I just felt like I needed to tell this story now. So what what parallels did you see between your family's history and the history of the country? Well, it, it was interesting. So um, I was reporting, obviously, this conflict in Pakistan, which the United States is involved in its war in a neighboring Afghanistan. And um, we know that how the United States and Pakistan are deeply involved in each other's affairs because of this war. Uh, but there's also this larger um, narrative of the war on terror and uh, this larger con- narrative of the clash of civilizations. And all these things sort of began, obviously, in 2001. And uh, that's where the book begins as well. That's where I, that's the point of departure in the book, is uh, are the the terrorist attacks of 2011 and uh, 2001, mm-hmm. in which I was in uh, in a rural Vermont in my college campus. Um, so this was, and then I, I moved to Pakistan and started reporting the war as a journalist. Um, and it was really. Um, and I found that when I found it was during that reporting that I found this family history, and I was amazed. This family history was uh, actually penned and, and, and written down about 200 years ago now. Oh, 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 yeah, almost two centuries ago. 
And it was uh, it was amazing to read this family history because uh, this was one of my ancestors who had written this family history. And he was born uh, into a world where the British colonists had just come to that part of the world to colonize South Asia um, and that region of the Indus and the Ganges and the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing to read that history that was written so long ago, in which my ancestor was talking about war, and he was talking about East and West meeting, and the conflict between East and West, and the tensions between Islamic civilization and Western civilization. And these were just themes that I, I had found myself writing about in my daily news reports. And it was really those kinds of parallels that I found that, hey, all this history in some ways has happened before. And these themes have run through centuries now. And so it was that kind of parallels between, and obviously the constant, you know, the the war that had, you know, at at that time and at this time. So there were these connections and these parallels um, that really drew me to telling this story of Pakistan in this particular way. There's a part of the book, in 1971, you talk about the, it was the eve of your parents' wedding and, and the day India, uh, say, intervened in uh, Pakistan's civil war. Will you tell that's us right. about this event? Well, yeah, that's where, um, that's one of the, the, in the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents uh, got married on this day. They got, had an arranged marriage. They had never seen each other before that day. So this was the first time they'd ever met as well. Not only was it the first day, the first time, well, not only was it the day they got married, it was the, f- the day they first met. Um, this was a time, this is 1971, so Pakistan had appeared on the map as a, as a very strange country that, had, that was uh, separated into two different wings on either side of India. So there was a thousand miles of India between this one country, Pakistan, and the two countries were uh, sworn enemies of, the other, of each other. So that was, uh, uh, and it was 1971, the two wings of Pakistan broke apart. And uh, India intervened in the civil war, and that's when the aerial warfare began on the day of my parents' wedding. Um, It was a very important time as well for Pakistan because Pakistan then became a more, well, it was obviously, Pakistan lost half of its population and a huge, I mean, almost 100,000 prisoners of war. Mm. Um, But it was also profoundly, it really profoundly uh, impacted, it really affected the country as well. Because uh, not only was the country cut into half, but it was also, in some ways, it became a more coherent state in that it became one corridor of land between the Himalayas and the Arabian Sea, and just a corridor of land that ran through through that, along the Indus River. But there was also, it really put pressure on the country because the country really felt deep pressure to define itself anew. And as clearly half the country had broken off, so it wasn't good enough in some ways, the original idea of the nation. And so the Pakistani constitution that was written right after that war really put a lot of stress on Islam, and Islam is a binding force in the country. Mm-hmm. And so this became a really important um, occasion for Pakistan to reinvent itself as an Islamic Republic. It had always considered itself an Islamic Republic, the world's first Islamic Republic. But the constitution that was written in those months and after my parents' wedding, uh, those became really defining for Pakistan if we look at it today, uh, because the country became very self-consciously Islamic in a way. In order, it was almost a response to the country breaking apart, that maybe Islam was a force that could 
keep the country together in the future. And it was that pressure that really acted on my family, my immediate family, my parents' lives, and my own life. And that really from that point onwards, um, it was a lot about that experiment in Islam that really affected me and my family personally. Well, you do say you you trace your family's ancestry to the inner circle of the Prophet Muhammad. I mean, mm-hmm. was this something that was known through generations, or how were you able to trace it, and what did it or does it mean for your family? Well, this was I mean, this was a history that had been obviously passed on to me, and this is the kind of history. These are the family tales that get passed on from generation to generation, from mother to daughter to son to, you know. And so I had always heard these stories from my mother telling me that, you know, you're you're descended from the inner circle of the Islamic prophet and you should be, and, you know, that was something that my family took pride in. But this was stories that had been told. I mean, these are stories sometimes told alongside, you know, bedtime stories and fairy tales. And so it was obviously it was meant as it was meant as a real story when I when it was spoken of in the family. But at that time, and really even when I'd grown up, it wasn't anything that you really take the scalpel of truth. You know, just, you don't dissect this stuff for mm-hmm. truth always. These are, this is the stuff. You know, these are the stories of family. And so I was never really concerned about figuring out whether I really wear my bloodline uh, led. Um, but it was when I saw the family history written down that it acquired a new meaning for me because it wasn't just so much that this family history existed. I became very interested or where it led, where the history of what it showed to me because that stuff in some ways I always had always been a part of me. But what I was fascinated by was that somebody actually went to the trouble of writing this stuff, that somebody actually took these family stories and tried to make them real. Um, through the power, you know, through their through the ink of their pen, and it was that. Oh, I mean, it really became. I really became fascinated and interested in exploring why and how and who wrote this history, and that is when I began. That's when I begin in the book as well to explore the history in the colonial period, when people like my ancestors felt the need to really draw this relationship tightly. Uh, tie themselves to an Islamic past that might or might not have existed, of course. I mean, there's no way, I say in the book that there's no way, I mean, any evidence of this obviously is long gone. There's no way for me to, there's no way for me to find out anymore the truth of this. Uh, But that, in a way, is less important. What is important to me and for uh, all of us and my readers, I think, to know is that people did believe in this and do believe in this. And that belief and that faith really shapes their lives. And really, not only individuals' lives, but it really ends up shaping the lives of the course of nations and countries and international politics. And did that sense of the power of writing influence you as a journalist or call you as a journalist? Is that what what drew you to really focus on who did the writing and, and how that makes things real? Absolutely. This was a lot of this was, uh, I mean, as much as obviously these events of seeing, encountering the history and all of this uh, triggered the writing of this book, um, this was in many ways a response to my own work as uh, a journalist. And uh, I'd always, you know, we'd always heard of it being the first draft of history. 
and uh, or this part and news and the journalism being the first draft of history. But it's really when I started writing this first draft of history and I became involved in and I experienced what this uh, process of writing is and this idea of capturing the truth as a writer, especially as a news as a news writer, it becomes I mean it was a very up close and intimate look at this process of writing. And I think it had everything to do with the way I reacted to my own family's history and those questions that came to me about how and why this history was written and who wrote it. Because in some ways I was reacting to this entire process of the historical record as a writer myself. And so a lot of this book and it's you know it weaved into this story of, of family and, and international politics and Islam in the West is also... Um, my exploration of what this process of writing is all about and and uh, this idea of whether the truth can really be captured in writing. And now you're teaching journalism at the University of Richmond. What's it like passing mm-hmm. this sort of thinking on to the next generation of journalists? Well, it, it, teaching is it's a change of pace from uh, war correspondent. Uh, but it's, uh, it's really, I mean, I think uh, that I do read, I do learn a lot more about my own writing. I was finishing this book up actually at a time when I was teaching a seminar on the nonfiction literature of war. So we were reading some great uh, nonfiction pieces. We read uh, Philip Gorevich's uh, work and Michael Hare's, uh, John Hersey's Hiroshima. Uh, so there was there was some great war journalism that we were reading at this time, and it was in those conversations that I I think I sorted through a lot of my own thoughts about this and this is the time when I was working through some of this early the beginning parts of the book towards the end of the writing process uh, but it really I think speaking this uh, hearing this stuff a lot and also I'm dealing with a generation that that my students were all I always begin these uh, seminar classes about war with uh, talking to my students about um, September 11th and their memories of them and it's amazing how I've taught this over three years now and each year the memories become more and more distant and more and more deeply ingrained in the student and it's pretty amazing to see how how these students of mine this generation that's in college now they've grown up in their entire lives are are molded by this war war that we're america's fighting right now in afghanistan in many ways and its mm-hmm. involvement in pakistan and uh it's interesting to hear their thoughts on this and the, the perspective that they bring to this is something that, you know, I think a lot of us, well, a lot of us who experienced this as adults are, you know, um, are, uh, don't, don't appreciate always. So it's very, it's very enriching to talk this stuff out, those ideas of war as well with my students. And how has the reaction been with your students or maybe teachers or fellow administrators? I mean, do you feel there's a genuine curiosity or is there, there a bit of ignorance about um, you, you know, what you encountered or what you're talking about post 9-11? Um, well, I think when it comes specifically to Pakistan, um, there, I think I feel there has been so much ink on Pakistan in the news media and there has been so much that Pakistan has been such a huge part of what America has talked about in its foreign relations for the past decade, ever since the Afghanistan war started. But uh, but I think that it's amazing that despite all the conversation, how weak the understanding of the country is. And that's one of the reasons why, what I was also driving me to write this book, is that I'm, ha- I'm Pakistani and I'm American and I see 
see Pakistan in a way as an insider and an outsider. And I have this, what I consider, I mean, I think I have a, 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 a somewhat unique, unique perspective on that country. And I felt the frustration, uh, I mean, I sensed the frustration that a lot of Americans have when it comes to talking about Pakistan, because there, it's always in the news, but you don't know what to make of it. You, don't, you can't tell why it behaves in the way it does, why it does the things it does, why does it get involved with the United States in the ways that it does. So I do sense there's a real curiosity about that country, and that's what I've tried to address in the book, is really lay out this personal narrative, but that one that captures the national narrative. But as far as these bigger ideas of, of Islam and where Islamic politics is going, uh, I, I think, I mean, this, we, we should open the newspaper today, and these, con these are conversations that are very current and relevant. When we talk about the Arab Spring in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and Egypt, Tunisia, the conversation about Islam and politics, and Islamic politics, is a very, very relevant one that I think a lot of people are interested in. And, and, and Pakistan is just, it's the, the best example and most relevant example to talk about because it was the original experiment in Islam and democracy. And, and so it becomes all the more important to understand this country beyond our war in Afghanistan. And I think it'll you know, remain that sort of part of that conversation. Well, you live in both Richmond, Virginia, and Pakistan. What is it like going back and forth? <laughs> Seamless sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, but not always. No, it's. Uh, I I do. I am very. I say in my book as well is that right at the beginning of the book that when I'm in Pakistan, nobody actually mistakes me for anything other than Pakistani, um, and that's just quite often true in the United States as well. Um, but I definitely do look the part when I'm there. It's uh, it's always I go back and forth. I'm constantly back and forth, either on on um, writing assignments for magazines or just to go visit. Um, um, I still have distant, I still have family in Pakistan, so it's uh, it's always easy to go back. Uh, but it is. I mean, the country changes a little bit every time. The the last the the last decade of war has really taken its toll on Pakistan in a very real way. And I see that, obviously, in America. As an American, I know this war has taken its toll on, on American society. But in Pakistan, it looks very different, and uh, the war has really changed to transform the country in many amazing ways, and I talk about those in the book. Um, the violence that spread, just this, this idea of what's acceptable just a violence that has, you know, slowly seeped into the national fabric over this decade of war is amazing. Um, but at the same time, the war has strangely brought such massive amounts of money into the country that you see at the same time these huge development projects that would not have been possible if Pakistan was a, a, such a central node in this international war. So it's just fascinating going back to Pakistan, really, and that's why I continue to go back, even though I'm, I'm done with the book and it's out. I still am pulled back to it often because um, there's a lot of mo a lot more stories to tell from there. Now you had mentioned the the geography of Pakistan earlier, and also in the book you talk about you know, recurring floods. Uh, how do these factors affect local politics? And uh, is there is there something like a correlation uh, to what's happening in the U.S. with the debate over how to address climate change, or is it just an entirely different way of the the physical interacting with the political? Absolutely. So the, I, I dedicate the you know the end of my book to talking about 
very particularly uh, about land. My entire book obviously explores the human relationship with the land and how that relationship is formed in many, you know, emotional and intellectual ways. But in the end of the book, I really come to the land and what the land looks like. Um, Pakistan is held together, if by anything. Uh, is it's held together by the river that runs through the length of Pakistan, which is the Indus River. The water system that's built around the system is one of the the most intensely it's one of the most intensely irrigated water systems uh, on the planet. Mm-hmm. And Pakistan is one of the largest, you know, most productive agricultural countries in the world. Which, in fact, that's little known. But the pr- agricultural production out of Pakistan, you know, dwarfs many of the other countries its uh, size. Uh, so, but this relationship is obviously at the at the end of this. Uh, all national projects and all projects about uh, whether they are Islamic or non-Islamic or any any kind, they're about acquisition to land. It's about getting land and then using that land and then for somehow bettering uh, your place in the world. And that's really what what I understand nationalism to be. Um, and in Pakistan's case, the Indus is is. Um, is the is the river around which the country is tied, but but the, the political forces that have acted on it are really draining it in some ways of life. And uh, Pakistan, if there was one, we talk about obviously we tend to focus in a lot about Pakistan's terrorism problem and security problem and and its wars. But if there really is a serious threat to Pakistan that it does not look like it's going anywhere anytime soon, that is the environmental. A threat, and that is the usage of the Indus River as a resource, and the usage is tied in with with the issues of politics, with issues of Islamic politics, because a lot of people who are claimed to be Islamic politicians are actually landowners, mm-hmm. and uh, Pakistan in some ways was formed by you know the power of the landowners in that area of the Indus. And so a lot of times when we're talking about Islam, we're actually talking about people who are trying to keep and maintain control over water and land resources. And that the pressures around that uh, dynamic are, are really leading Pakistan headfirst into an environmental catastrophe. And this is something that should be of concern to the entire world, because here is one of the largest countries in the world, um, fifth or sixth largest country by population in the world, whose uh, citizens, if they don't, or in, in their political leadership, if they don't confront this issue of the water in the country soon and the environmental disaster that's in the making, we really could be looking at a catastrophe that could, could affect the entire world. Well, moving on to perhaps a, a lighter subject and, and mm-hmm. back to the States, uh, you, you've written on South uh, South Asians in, in America. You wrote about cricket in Florida, which is my home state. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And uh, today, uh, cricket legend Sachin Tendulkar, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, announced his retirement. How's this played out, this news played out in South Asia and, and uh, with South Asians in the U.S.? Oh, boy. This is, yeah, I could go on about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, Sachin Tendulkar did not have such a good record against batting record against Pakistan. Right. So I'll just point that out. Right. <laughs> uh, but no, he's a he's, a, he's an Indian batsman. He's an Indian player. Uh, I mean, a living legend if there ever is one in sports. He's almost. A, I spent time in India as well, and I write about it in the book. But he is a deity in India. He's a sports star. He's very, you know, he's, he's, he's actually a short guy. He's not. He's not much more than five feet tall. Wow. But a supremely talented. 
athlete. Um, and in some ways, one of the best that has existed, they say, in the centuries of recorded history of cricket. So he, this is, this is a huge moment, but he's just only retired from one form of the game, I might uh, point out, from the five-day format. <laughs> so he still has the one-day format to keep going in. <laughs> But Pakistanis, I would say, Pakistanis are, are probably, if anything, maybe secretly a little relieved. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shahan, thanks so much for those insights. Thanks so much for coming on our show. Well, no, it was a pleasure, Mark. Thanks. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior Bookselling Editor Judith Rosen tells us what's happening at trade shows for booksellers, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW senior bookselling editor Judith Rosen brings us the news from Neba and Neba. Hi, Judith. Hi, Mark. So tell us what Neba and Neba stand for and what was it like there? Well, after the um, Book Expo in June, the biggest set of bookselling events are the fall trade shows. And NEBA is one of the biggest in the United States. It draws about 700 booksellers, authors, and publishers. And NEBA stands for New England Independent Booksellers Association. NEBA is a little bit smaller. Um, there were about 180 booksellers at that show, mm. and that one stands for New Atlantic. You're probably more familiar with Mid-Atlantic, but the region goes from New York um, down to Arlington, Virginia. So New Atlantic is sort of between New England and Mid-Atlantic? Exactly. Kind of how that goes? <laughs> All right. Learning something new about geography. Uh, well, we we make it work. That's what booksellers do all the time in their stores. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, walk us around one of these shows. What's it like when you're there? Um, it's really kind of fun. It is a great way for booksellers to have a chance to talk with authors. And there are many, many author events. So you get to meet um, people who might be receiving an award like Judy Bloom, who mm -hmm. is... I think the rock star of the children's publishing world. Absolutely. Um, and uh, can also meet people like Alice Hoffman, who has two new books, a very thin but really important book about surviving uh, cancer, and uh, another book, a novel, The Museum of Extraordinary Things. Uh, which was based on the um, fire in New York City at the, in the early part of the 20th century when so many workers were locked into a factory. Oh, the, the Triangle the Shirt Waste? Triangle waste Shirt Factory. factory yeah. Jane Ann Phillips was there with a new book called Quiet Dell, which is a big favorite from Stephen King, uh, also based on a true story, in this case, Multiple Murders by a con man. Uh, so there's all that excitement, not just to the authors there, but some authors who couldn't be there, whose books uh, were being scooped up, like Donna Tartt, uh, who has a new novel, The Goldfinch, um, 
children's books are really big. And uh, it's not just books coming out in the fall. Uh, it's an opportunity for publishers to alert booksellers about new titles coming up um, in the winter and spring 2014. So I know uh, someone from Scholastic put in my hand a copy of A Snicker of Magic by Natalie Lloyd and assured me I'd be sleeping with it every night because it's just such a wonderful, magical book. You'd be sleeping with it what, what, under, your, under your pillow? Uh, kind of like, like a, a teddy, bear? teddy bear or something. <laughs> I would just be in love with this book. <laughs> well, that's inducement enough for me to start reading. I'll have to say that. <laughs> sure. This, this book will be your new best friend. Yes, I'd like books to be my friends. And it's also a chance for booksellers to talk about what they're doing in the stores, what's working for them, uh, maybe how they're doing author events, uh, what they're doing about um, displaying and helping out self-published authors. Not displaying the authors, displaying their books, obviously. And um, even things like building bookstore communities and how you work with the people in your community in various aspects to make your store a true community center in a digital age. And so where were these conferences held? The New England was held where? And the New Atlantic was in what city? The New England show was held in Providence, Rhode Island, where it's been held for the last few years. And the New Atlantic show was in Somerset, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and part of that, the reason for the choice of that location was that show also gave booksellers a chance to go to the Baker and Taylor Warehouse in nearby Bridgewater and see what a warehouse looks like. Oh, sure. Neat. Did you get to go along with that? I did. I did. What it was, was it like? It was very fun. I've never seen so many boxes floating <laughs> around, and to see the way the um, conveyor belts to know what the order is and drop drop off the book in front of the people who are packing it. It was it was definitely fun to see how they locate the books when they come in. Uh, um, that particular warehouse can uh, can work with up to process up to one hundred and fifty thousand books a day. Wow! Wow! Right now, because it's not Christmas, they were only doing ninety thousand. Only. That's impressive. (laughs) It was very impressive. So what was the feeling like at NAVA while you were out there in Somerset? You said that's the smaller of the two shows. How was the energy there? The energy was really good. Um, Many booksellers have been having a surprisingly great year this year. Um, And there were some new stores. Um, There were... There was just um, there were some people who were thinking about buying a bookstore or starting a bookstore. Really? There was a lot of energy just about book selling in general, and of course, people were excited about the books. Um, and it's great because we were meeting in a hotel convention center, so you got to see just about everybody you wanted to see and you got to see them have lots of opportunities to speak. So you might attend a panel and think, oh, I wish I could talk to one of the other booksellers about it. I wish I could talk to Kenny Breckner, who mm-hmm. was doing um, a panel on Common Core, and ask him some questions directly, and and uh, you, you might be able to see him at dinner or lunch and, and have that opportunity. And That's not always so easy. 
booksellers sometimes find it hard to get out of their stores and go too far because because they do work very long hours to make their store successful. So, so what was your takeaway from this, other than a general air of optimism? Was there any any big trend that you're seeing? Do you think that those people who are dreaming of starting their own stores are doing it at a good time? Are they likely to be successful? I think it is a good time. At the at the Neba show in particular, uh, the new owners of Porter Square Books, who had just purchased the store, were there. I think one of the exciting things for some of the old-time booksellers was to see younger people come into the business and see it being carried on by the next generation. Because mm-hmm. There's a whole group of booksellers who got in the business maybe 30 or 40 even years ago, mm-hmm. and they would like to pass on their stores, they'd like to see them survive, and they'd like to see more stores start up again and so there there was a nice sense of that and and that's part of that whole sharing process too they want to help the new booksellers find their way well judith thank you so much for that roundup and as always it's great to have you on the show thank you and that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pub WKLY radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 